Well, hello, everyone. Phil Giuliani here again on Messianic Lamb Network. And this is a program called One in Messiah. And if you've been with us before, you know that it's a time, it's a a class, a program, a series of studies, or whatever you want to call it, where we connect the Tanakh to the New Testament to the Brit Hadashah, and we explain how the Torah, the prophets, the writings all point to Yeshua, all point to what he does uh, for salvation, all point to how he would come, how he would do that, how we would be saved, and how he would fulfill the law, how how he would be the end point of what was promised in the law and the prophets. And sorry, I'm having a little visual thing here with my background and my lighting. (laughs) Because the camera I was going to use stopped working earlier today. So I'm using my computer camera. But anyway, we'll do the best we can. Because once we get to the PowerPoint, I'm just going to be a little guy in the corner. (laughs) So... This ministry, as I always like to point out, is based on um, Ephesians chapter 2, which um, verses 14 to 16, now paraphrase, talks about how Yeshua in his flesh broke down the partition between the two, between Jew and Gentile, making one new man. And then the second scripture that um, of course, fought, not only follows from that, but applies to everything in all of the Bible, is Yeshua himself in John 5.39 saying, all the scriptures testify of me. So all the scriptures testify of him. And like I always mention, it's not like um, he says there's a couple of verses here and a couple of verses there. And it's not like he says, this chapter is about me and this other chapter, not so much. He says, all the scripture testifies of me. All the scrolls are about me. So one of the things that I do, and uh, one of Messiah, as as I also like to point out, has a live uh, ministry. We meet on Friday evenings and we are in the Cleveland, Ohio area. So if you are in the area, if you're in Greater Cleveland, we meet Friday nights at uh, 709 Brook Park Road, which is at Brooklyn Heights, and is uh, Calvary Chapel of Cleveland Church. So we gather there at about 615. And as you you know, with um, (coughs) most churches, prayer meetings, Bible studies, we say 615, but by the time it actually starts, it's more like. 625, 630, maybe even 635, but whatever. But then we try to keep it to um, about an hour and a quarter, hour and 20 minutes at the most. And we do praise and worship, and I do a teaching. And so if you're in the area, come and join us. At the end of the program, you'll see a slide that has 
my two web pages, my podcast information, and my YouTube channel. And on the YouTube channel, you can see all of the um, videos from the Friday night. Um, I don't want to call them services because it isn't really a church or a congregation. Um, but you'll see a, the live presentations, let's say, um, as, as well as a lot of other things and these programs as well. And that YouTube channel is One in Messiah Gift of Grace Ministries. Now that's a little awkward, but it's One in Messiah Gift of Grace Ministries. And there's also podcasts which are under Dr. Phil slash Gift of Grace. So if you search for Dr. Phil slash Gift of Grace, you'll find about 800 and some podcasts that um, you can scroll through in your spare time. <laughs> but anyway, here we are on Lamb Network, and I always like to add how excited and happy I am to be here. And I thank Mark Smith for all the work that he does and for getting me involved in this. And it's always great to be here. So we talk about, as I, as I mentioned, and we, we talk about how Yeshua fulfills not only Torah, not only the prophets, but also the writings. And the writings include the Psalms. And the Psalms, of course, the vast majority of the Psalms were written by David, who, as we're going to see in a minute, <clears throat> a few minutes, is in fact an ancestor of Yeshua in a very direct way. And we know from Matthew's gospel and from Luke's gospel that both Mary and Joseph are from the line of David. They are, in fact, descended from David. And this is to keep consistent with a prophecy that we're going to go over in a little while, which basically talks about how Messiah is going to come biologically from King David. And if you've, I'm sure you've studied the Psalms in some sense, and you've um, at least read through them, and you're familiar with them, and it's not always easy to remember what number Psalm is, which one, but, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's good to know that it's not always critical. What's important is to have the concepts that are there. And many of the Psalms are messianic. Many of them are messianic, two and three and 22 and 105 and 110 and 40 and there's other ones. I'm just saying those off the top of my head. But David, who's not commonly, he's not commonly referred to as a prophet, is in fact a prophet in the sense that in many of the Psalms, he tells us about Messiah. He tells us about Yeshua, tells us what is going to happen with him what he's going to do. And just like Isaiah covers such a wide range of 
uh, information about Messiah, David does as well in the Psalms and has a lot about the suffering Messiah, a lot about how Yeshua the Messiah will suffer in order to atone for sin, how people will react to that, and so forth. And so David is technically, you could say he's a prophet, although he's not generally considered a prophet. So we're going to talk about him today, and I'm going to about to bring the PowerPoint on because you probably knew I was going to have a PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm still trying to adjust this kind of crazy. I don't know if you guys are seeing it, but I'm seeing like this glittering in the corner. It's uh, a little bit better. I don't know. Anyway, we'll just go with this. Um, because one of the one of the titles of Messiah, of course, is that he's the son of David. And if you ask any Jewish person, traditional Jewish person, they'll tell you that Messiah, in their terminology, is going to be the son of David. We that are, of course, involved with Jewish believers, with Messianic Jews, understand that he is, in fact, the son of David, and that he came into the world, into, into space and time, more specifically into our place and time as the son of David. And many times during the gospels, there are people who yell out to him and address him as son of David. Uh, The people that want to be healed, the people that are enthusiastic about his teachings and about what he's saying. My particular favorite are the um, Palm Sunday accounts where people waving the palm branches, of course, a direct um, flashback back to Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, and how you praise the Lord by waving the branches. Now, Palm Sunday, only the palms are mentioned, not the myrtle and the willow. And, but the idea is the same, and the people who are waving the branches and praising are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And so the reason they're saying that, and on the other side of the coin, the reason that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders are so upset is by saying Hosanna to the son of David, you're saying, you are the Messiah, come and save us. And again, it's a direct connection to Zechariah 9.9, where Zechariah talks about how Jerusalem should rejoice because your king comes to you riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, and bringing salvation with him, which is in fact what was happening (laughs) that day because he was coming into the city on the day that people picked out a lamb that they were going to take home for the Passover. And he, of course, was the perfect lamb. He, of course, is the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist identifies him. And so Son of David is such a a powerfully important point because it also has to do with his kingship. David, of course, was king. 
we don't have time to go into all that, but of course he was not the first king because Saul was the first king. God didn't really approve of that. He let it go on because the people wanted him. And as he told Samuel later, you know, they're not, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. He was supposed to be their king. They wanted a king because they wanted to be like everybody else, which they weren't supposed to be like everybody else. They were supposed to be separate. And in the 21st century church, we're encountering that again, where so many churches, so many people in positions of leadership are trying harder and harder to be like the world. We're not supposed to be like the world. We are separated <clears throat> because we're followers of Yeshua. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Ruach. We're not supposed to be like the world. In First Peter, he taught, Peter talks about how we're a people set apart. We're a nation of priests. Priests. We're a nation of prophets. We're people set apart. But now... The church is falling into the abyss along with the rest of the world, trying to be like everybody else so that everyone will like us better and so that people in the world won't think we're a bunch of kooks. Say, hey, we're just like you. We're just like you guys. We're not any different. Well, if we're not any different from the world, then what are we doing? Yeshua said, if the world hates you, Know that it's going to hate you because the world hated me first. So if you try to get the world to like you, that contradicts what he says in that gospel. Because the world is never going to like us. It's never going to like us. As Paul points out in, in Romans, especially brilliantly, I might add, there's spirit and there's flesh. And they, they, they're, they're at war with each other. So Messiah, who has to have, of course, both natures, and you know that he is 100% God and 100% man, because he has to be the perfect sacrifice. He's not contaminated by Adam's sin because he does not have a human father not contaminated by the fallen nature that we are all contaminated by. And because of that, and because of what he does to reconcile the world to God, Paul also tells us in Romans that he's the second Adam. The first Adam brought us death. The second Adam brings us life. And so he has to be human in order to be the perfect sacrifice. He has to be human in order to be the suffering servant. He is also divine. He has to have both natures or else he can't be the Messiah. So what we're going to talk about today, and this serves as a lengthy introduction <laughs> what we're talking about today is this concept of the son of david 
because it's such a um such an all such an all encompassing idea especially because of Jesus of Nazareth's human nature that he has to have actual biology he has to actually be descended from people he actually has to have a body he is not the second person of the trinity who comes to earth and then appears to be a 30-year-old man. He is, in fact, a human being who was conceived, not in the way that the rest of us have been conceived, but was actually conceived in a woman's womb. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, he was, in fact, conceived and developed and delivered and grew up and learned and talked and walked around and learned the trade from Joseph, who, of course, is not his father, but is his foster father, I guess. But his body was a real body. And as I like to say, when he was a little kid and he was running and he fell down and scraped his knee, his knee hurt. When he was in the horrible suffering that led to the cross. He suffered horrendous pain, searing pain. Maybe as we get into the Passover season, we can talk about what happens medically, what happens physiologically and anatomically when someone is crucified. And I say is crucified because it still happens. It's not the form of execution that it was at that time, obviously. But many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world have, in fact, been crucified as part of the persecution because they're believers. So when Abraham is sovereignly chosen by God to... Begin the chosen people, although that's probably not a good word. But you know what I mean? He and Sarah are the fathers of the father and mother of the chosen people. Abraham is the father of nations because he's also the father of the Arabs. You know that. And that's through Ishmael. We're not going to get into all that. And Esau has a part in this too later. But Yeshua, Jesus himself, is physically descended from Abraham and from Isaac and from Jacob, the three main patriarchs, and Judah, going down the line to King David, and then going down the line a thousand more years to the time of his birth with Mary and Joseph both being from the house and the lineage of David. So the prophecies are held together. The prophecies are have to be fulfilled. He has to, in fact, be the son of David. We get a little background here. Um, 
in Second Samuel. If you've never studied First and Second Samuel, you should really do that. They are um, in the Hebrew Scripture all one book. I'm not sure why they they were divided up in the early part of the Christian era when the canon was put together, but for simplicity's sake, there's first and second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter seven is very powerful because it tells us how David gets the promise through the prophet Nathan that he is going to be the ancestor of Messiah. He doesn't know how long it's going to be, but he's, he finds out that Messiah is actually going to physically come from his own body, not some adopted way, not Messiah doesn't have some, what appears to be a human body, but is an illusion, is some kind of cosmic projection. He does, in fact, have a human body. And when he was walking around with his, with the apostles and other disciples, if you came in contact with that body, you knew that it was a real body. Your hand didn't pass through it. (laughs) If you bumped into him, you bumped into a person. And so we go to 2 Samuel 7, starting in 2. Now, this is David kind of feeling bad that he's living in this beautiful place and the ark of God is still in the tent, is still in the, actually the same tent that went through the wilderness with the people. Verse two, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Well, we're going to see in a minute. This was kind of a quick answer. This is kind of a rash answer, as it's going to turn out. Here was David. He's resting from all the wars he was in. His enemies have been vanquished. He's in this beautiful palace, all made out of cedar. Can you imagine how good it would have smelled? Probably the cedars of Lebanon. And he now has time to kind of contemplate what's going on. He's written a lot of the Psalms. He's still writing Psalms. He talks about how he's contemplating God and contemplating the law. And I always like to point out that David says, I meditate on the law day and night. Doesn't keep the law, but he meditates on the law, which is okay. But like everybody else, and we certainly don't have time to go through the the life history of David, but you know the highlights of it. He He has time now to contemplate. He wants to honor God. He mentions this also in Psalm 132. He wants to honor God by building him a house. So this concept of building a house is what becomes important in terms of what's going to lead to Messiah coming. He wants to build a house. Now, 
the prophet Nathan, who's also his friend and kind of his confidant, and is a prophet, he gets words from the Lord through the Ruach. He talks to Nathan talks to David as a friend and as a confidant, as an advisor. And we see in that passage that Nathan doesn't pray about how to answer this, doesn't pray about how to deal with this statement of, well, the ark of God lives in a tent and I'm living in a palace. I'm, I, I, I want to build him a house. I want him to have a nice place to live. You know, God's presence should be living in a tent. So he doesn't answer David as a prophet. He doesn't answer David in God's name or in a word that he gets from the Spirit. Doesn't take time to reflect on it and to meditate on this and to, as we would say, pray about this. He answers as a friend, confidant, advisor. Yeah, do what do what you're thinking. Because Nathan says, thinking, this sounds like a great idea. Yeah, you know, you know the tents over there, that's cool. But man, you know, now we're settled. The kingdom is settled. The enemies are all under control. You're the king. You can do this now. And so he answers them from a totally human viewpoint. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, now this is after he's had, of course, after he's had this conversation with the king, (coughs) go do what's in your heart, because, oh, this is going to be great. Now, here's God talking to, to David through Nathan. So he tells Nathan, go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. We get the word tabernacle from the same word as tent. It A tent in the wilderness was, of course, a temporary dwelling. We know that from our celebration of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, living in temporary shelters. Messiah Yeshua comes to live with us in the same kind of temporary shelter that we have. His is already glorified, was glorified on the third day. Ours will be glorified later at some point. And this is why Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians that Yeshua is the first fruit of the resurrection. He rises on the Feast of First Fruits. He's the first fruit of the resurrection. And so, consequently, he says, he's the first to rise. All of us will rise in proper order. He's first, but we will all rise at some point. So Nathan goes home and he's, you know, relaxing or praying or whatever. And the Lord speaks to him, says, go tell David, you're going to build me a house. I've never lived in a house. I've always lived in a tent. You remember in the book of Exodus, 
God gives such specific instructions for building everything that has to be in the sanctuary. And the reason he gives for wanting a sanctuary constructed is that he wants to dwell with his people. First in the tent and then in the temple. He wants to dwell with the people. Now he dwells with us and in us, but he wanted to dwell with the people in a shelter, in a place. It all comes from Sukkot. Everything goes back to Torah. And God says, well, you know, you you think you need to build me a house. I've never lived in a house, and I've I've done perfectly fine. Wherever I've moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I moved around with the people. <clears throat> when we got back to the land, I've still been living in the tent. I've never told anyone to build me a house. You're going to shepherd my people, but I've never told you to build me a house. You know, this concept of shepherding, of course, is important because Moses was a shepherd. Well, actually, the original patriarchs have livestock, but Moses was a shepherd and David was a shepherd, if you remember. They called him in from the field when Samuel was at at Jesse's house to anoint the next king. They went through all his brothers. None of them were the one. And then Samuel says to Jesse, you have any other boys? He said, well, just David, who's out there with the sheep. He was probably 16 at the time, but he's the one. And so Yeshua, of course, calls himself the good shepherd. This metaphor of shepherding keeps on going. Because people are much like sheep. As Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Sheep just go all over the place. So through the prophet Nathan, David learns that God's never asked anybody to build him a house. So at this point, the purpose of this all was that David was not going to build the temple. And he's told why. Blood on his hands. Adultery. All the other stuff that he did. He is not going to build the house. And this happens that same night, because this message comes to him now through the prophet Nathan. It comes the very same night. And so the original enthusiasm and zeal that David has is now tempered by, this is not God's will. You're not going to build the, the temple. Tells him your son Solomon, Shlomo, will in fact build the temple. David's already ordered a lot of material. He orders a lot of material, brings the cedar from Lebanon, starts quarrying the rocks. And that same night, he learns that he's not going to be the one to build the temple. There needed to be more preparation for this. He was a military man. He had shed a lot of blood 
not only his adultery and all the scheming that he did, but the plotting to murder Uriah, for example, the trouble within the family with his with Absalom and uh, time to go through all that and we can't put up every um, every scripture, but you you know about all that. Solomon was going to be better suited to build the temple. It's not going to be David. David's point was to be king, consolidate the kingdom, which of course doesn't last past Solomon. But he finds out that same day he's not building the temple. God's presence had been with the people in the tent, capital T, in the sanctuary. And God never complained about that. He says, I never told anybody. Yeshua, this foretells, this foreshadows also Yeshua coming to live in our tent, to live in a tent like ours, to live in the same kind of a body that we all have. And again, I reference the book of Romans where Paul says he had the appearance of sinful flesh. What does he mean by that? He looked like everybody else. His body looked like everybody else's body, except he didn't have the sin. So Messiah lives in a habitation, in a tent that's like ours. And God here says, I've lived in a tent and I've traveled with you. Messiah is going to come and live in your kind of tent and he's going to walk around with you. You're going to hear him talk. You're going to see him do things. And he's going to be the perfect sacrifice. So all this ties together. This is one of the thousands of things that tie together. And although the temple did not exist in David's physical life, because David dies before the temple's built, obviously, Solomon dedicates it. And I mean, if you want to read some beautiful stuff, you know, it's, it's um, Second Chronicles chapters 5, 6, and 7 is about Solomon dedicating the temple. And it's just really awesome. But David, in, in many of the Psalms, calls the tent the temple. He talks about how he sits in the temple and he contemplates. Well, there was no temple. He was in the tent. He was from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah, which, of course, is the tribe that Yeshua belongs to. The tribe of Judah was the ruling tribe, the governing tribe. This goes back to Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is about to die and is blessing all the boys, Judah gets the scepter. Judah becomes the lion. And of course, this prefigures the Messiah. David is from the tribe of Judah. Saul was not. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. That's described many times in 1 Samuel. He wasn't supposed to be the king, but the people wanted him. So David is from the correct tribe, and of course, as as is Solomon, and down the line to Messiah, down the line to Yeshua. So it's the ruling tribe. 
So God points out he never mentions to anybody about building a temple. Now, was this David's idea? Well, not really, because a temple would be built shortly after David dies. But what God was trying to point out was he was perfectly happy living in the tent in the sense that he was, it was something that he had designed and it was a way for him to tabernacle with people. The temple, of course, when it was built, would magnify that and it would be a house of prayer for all nations, as it says in Isaiah. But he, in a very powerful way, lived in the tent. And again, it's to foreshadow Yeshua living in a human body. I shouldn't say it that way. There's no good words to describe it. <clears throat> it's called the hypostatic union, the God-man, somehow united within the same being, within the same person. So it was not time to build the temple. Then he goes on, verse 8, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, when a prophet says, Thus says the Lord, or Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is a very important, powerful message that has to be obeyed, has to be paid attention to. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. I took you from watching sheep. You were the young boy who watched the sheep, protected them from the wolves. Says he killed a lion and a bear. I don't know. I guess he must have, but I don't know how a lion would have gotten there, but he protected the sheep. But God says, I took you from the sheep to shepherd my people. And again, this goes back to this messianic idea of the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd where the sheep, we hear his voice. John 10, Yeshua says, I know my sheep and they know me. They know my voice. I go in the sheepfold and I lead them out. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. If we're following him, we'll know his voice. We know it's not the voice of the wolf. We know it's not the voice of a false shepherd. Today, there's false shepherds all over the place. And I mean all over the place. And so we have to be very careful. As Paul tells us in other letters, we have to discern what's going on. We have to hold every thought captive and then hold on to what is right and hold on to what is good. We have to test the spirits because there's lots of voices in the world. And Yeshua himself, Paul, John, Peter all said false teachers would come, false shepherds would come. Yeshua said there'll be wolves in sheep's clothing that go in among the flock. So Here, God's telling David, he's ruler, he's shepherding Israel, and he used to, in fact, be a real shepherd that actually took care of actual sheep. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, 
and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. We saw Israel regathered in 1948. That was a little bit before I was born, but not a long time before I was born. But in so many people's lifetime that are here today, we've not only seen Israel reestablished as a nation, but the people, the outcasts of Judah, brought there from the four corners of the earth, as Isaiah said would happen. And we talked about that last week, I think, or the week before, I can't remember. So I've made you great. You're king over this place. And ultimately, the people aren't going to be moved from here. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. God says, you want to make me a house? No, I'm going to make you a house. Now, how is he going to make David a house? You know, God reminds David of his background. You were watching sheep. I called you. I sent Samuel to your father's house just to anoint you. And you've gone from being a simple shepherd, a job that lots of people had, to being one of the great men of the earth. You're ruling over the people now. And it's going to go even farther because now I am going to build you a house. You thought you were going to build me a house? No, no. I'm going to build you a house. Now, he's not talking about a building here. David can't really understand this at this point. And I don't think Nathan can either. He's going to establish a royal dynasty. David's going to be ruling over the kingdom. And it's going to be the kingdom of David. But what it points to is the Messianic kingdom. What it points to is the kingdom of Messiah. What it points to is the kingdom of God. You remember when Pilate is talking to Yeshua on Good Friday, he actually treats him with more respect and concern than his own brethren did, the, quote, religious people did. So, so, so you are a king, and puts the puts the inscription over the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, which made the leaders really mad. So, a royal dynasty is coming, which is going to lead to Messiah. It's going to lead to Yeshua who is not only going to be king of Israel, but he's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when Isaiah points out in chapter 40 that the nations are a drop in the bucket, as far as God is concerned, it's because he's king of kings. Nations always rise and fall. Empires rise and fall. 
but Yeshua will always be sitting on the throne of David. Then he goes on. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You're going to build me a house? No, no, no. Listen, I'm going to build you a house. And the way I'm going to build you a house is from you, from you is going to come someone who is going to build a house for God's name and is going to establish this kingdom, which is never going to end. And this throne that you sit on is never going to end because he is going to sit on that same throne, metaphorically from your seed is going to come this one. So you're not building me a house. I'm building you a house. I'm building you a house in a way that from that moment on, people will say that Messiah Yeshua is your son. He is the son of David in a very real way. Through Mary, of course. But says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. So now could you imagine David thinking, what? Or Nathan saying, what? He's going to come from you, from your seed is going to come this one. But I'm going to be his father, and he's going to be my son. But he's coming from your body. And then the kingdom is going to be established. Pretty amazing. How awesome is that? I'll be his father. He'll be my son. These are functional terms. It doesn't mean that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is less God than the Father. And it doesn't mean he's less God than the Holy Spirit. There's a functional relationship that was established before anything was created, that this was going to be the plan of salvation. The second person was going to come, take on flesh and be the son and be the perfect sacrifice and bring salvation to those who repent of their sins and follow him as Lord. I'll be his father. He'll be my son. But he's going to come from your body because he has to have humanity. So he'll have both natures. I'll be his father, but you are going to provide his humanity. And of course, it's going to be through his mother. And he points out, this is a house for my name. He says, I'm going to establish the throne forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So David, you're king, and you got this probably pretty cool-looking throne right here, but your real throne is going to be established forever. The eternal kingdom is going to have a way more awesome throne than this because I'm establishing it for you 
And the one that's going to come from your seed, the one that I'm going to be a father to, and he's going to be a son to me, is going to sit on that throne. That's the house I'm building you. Luke 1. You all know this passage. This, I just condensed part of it here. This is the annunciation of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of this kingdom, there will be no end. So now Gabriel tells Mary, Mary's descended from David. Mary, we don't know what her level of education was. We don't know what her level of knowledge was. Presumably she went to the synagogue every Shabbat. Presumably she would have heard these readings from Samuel. So now Gabriel says to her, you're going to conceive a son, which is not going to be Joseph's son. It's not going to be any other man's son. You're going to call him Yeshua, <coughs> which means salvation. He's going to be the son of the Most High. And the Lord God's going to give him the throne of his father, lowercase f, David. So in other words, he's going to be the son of David. He's going to sit on the throne of David, but God is going to do that. And he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom's never going to end. Quite a bit for a probably 16-year-old girl to deal with. Quite a bit for anybody to deal with, not just 16-year-olds. So God is going to do this, but he mentions... Gabriel mentions his father is going to be David. His lowercase f father is going to be David. His capital F father is, is God, the father. So this is all put together. Then, to not leave Joseph out of this, when Joseph hears all this stuff, you know, he's going to marry this girl, finds out that she's pregnant, and he gets worried, he wants to divorce her, they were betrothed, he want, doesn't want to subject her to the law. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Joseph's the son of David as well, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall name his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. You're going to name him Yeshua, which means salvation, because he is going to save his people from their sins. From David, Joseph is also in the line. Mary is in the line. David's seed goes, in, goes through to Mary and to Joseph. Joseph's seed is not in Yeshua, but he's appointed by God to take care of the Messiah. Can you imagine that? From the time he's a newborn 
until whenever it was that Joseph died. We don't know that. But the angel tells Gabe, tells Joseph in a dream, don't worry about Mary. This is the son of the Most High. She's going to bring forth a son. You're going to call him Yeshua. He's going to save his people from their sins. Starting with that, well, I shouldn't say starting with that, because it starts again, as I think we pointed out last week, it starts in Genesis 3.15. And Genesis 3.15 is called, is referred to usually as the first proclamation of the gospel. And why is it called that? Because Adam and Eve have fallen. They have rebelled. Their fellowship, their intimacy with God is now broken. Things are not going to be the same again. Why could God not forgive them? I mean, this seems like a pretty silly thing. They each took a bite of a whatever it was. We say it's an apple. We don't know if it was an apple, but let's say it was an apple. <clears throat> Taking one bite each of an apple. Why didn't couldn't God just say, eh, you know, you guys, I wish you hadn't done that, but now that you did it, oh, well, you know, all right, let's just, d- don't do it anymore. Let's, I'm going to get rid of this tree. We're going to start over again. All right. No. Because he's all holy and all just, he cannot overlook it. He cannot overlook sin. In Galatians, Paul writes, God is not mocked. Because of that seemingly silly incident involving our two original ancestors, we get old, we get sick, we die. We get diseases, the earth is cursed, there's floods, there's droughts, there's hurricanes. The whole universe is affected by it. And this starts off the promise because God says from the seed of the woman is going to come the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. The serpent's going to try to strike back. He's going to bite at his heel, but he's going to crush the serpent's head. Then a chosen people begins with Abraham to produce, to number one, have God reveal himself, his nature, his covenant, his law. And secondly, to produce human descent, human heredity, human generation so that Messiah can have a human body. And it gets in those passages from 2 Samuel 7, it gets crystallized that he is going to, in fact, be the son of David from David's own body. And although I've said this a million times, you have to say it again, Mary and Joseph were both descended from David because the line had to be preserved. They certainly weren't living as a royal family. They were pretty much living in pretty poor conditions. They weren't exactly living in a mansion somewhere like a royal family. But 
the prophecy had to be consistent. The line had to be kept. And the throne that David sat on then becomes the throne of Messiah. And the kingdom lasts forever and ever. All of this not only points to him in a spiritual way, but even in a very physical way. So I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope it's given you some things to think about. And of course, you should read all the background, read all the passages over again for your home homework, and come back next week, and we'll be at it again. Have a good week.